when you think of these problems, just help us smile because we think of happier times, whether it be a sitting at Tiger Stadium and some idiot throws it on the field, whether it be at a pool and a hot summer day and just relaxing weather, or hitting it back and forth, or as a little girl playing with it. When you see a beach ball, it reminds you of happier times. But I thought about our message today and in the regards to the beach ball, what, how this applies is, one thing I remember with beach balls when they're fully blown up, you can push them underwater all you want, but when you finally let go, they're coming back up. You can force it down and you can push it away and you can try to keep it down, but as soon as you take your hands off of it, it will always come back. And I believe that sets a great image today of a believer who's saved but yet is wandering away from God, whether it be in sin or disobedience or rebellion. You see, you're here and you're saved, you're a believer, and you know Christ is your personal Savior, you have the Holy Spirit, and you're not doing what you're supposed to, being what you're supposed to, acting like you're supposed to. God is trying to lead you, whether it's an act of rebellion, and you're pushing down the Holy Spirit, and you keep pushing Him down, and you think, finally, I can leave and I can walk away. But God will never leave you nor forsake you, will He? You see, you're in sin. You're out of the will of God. You see, there's two different types of terms to be correct. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the term was backslidden. It, it was backslidden. And it, it was kind of an idea, really, for the nation of Israel. For the New Testament, the correct term is out of fellowship. We're out of fellowship with God. And you say, Pastor Steve, can I use that Old Testament term? Yeah, you can use that Old Testament. But it's technically an Old Testament term referencing Israel's rebellion towards God and not doing what they're supposed to. For us as New Testament believers who have the Holy Spirit, who have Christ as our personal Savior, we don't technically backslide. But what happens, our fellowship with God starts to get broken. Our relationship with Jesus starts to lessen. But really, whatever you want to call it, King Saul is gay. You can call it backslidden. You can call it out of fellowship. Whatever you want to call it. You can call him a prodigal son. You can call him wayward. These terms all describe King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 19. If you're taking notes, our opportunity thought is this. Returning is always available for believers. Returning is always available for believers. Let me just give you a little theological aspect. Once you know Christ is your personal Savior, you cannot lose that salvation. Amen? You cannot lose being a child of God. You cannot lose that right standing. You cannot lose being justified. But what you can lose, you can lose the power. You can lose the joy. You can lose the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can keep pushing down God and keep pushing Him away and thinking, well, no, no, I finally got this under control. I will never go back to church. I will never read my Bible. I am just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But Jesus said He will never leave you nor forsake you. And we love those verses during difficult times. Don't He'll never leave me. But that same principle applies to the wayward child of God. You see, Jesus said this in His own in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Today, if you can identify with King Saul, or you have someone you love who can identify with King Saul, and you've been pushing away God's will, I have a simple answer for you. Give up. Give up. Because you can't run from God, ask Jonah. You can't run from God, because every time you run away from God, since God is everywhere and all-powerful, you actually end up turning around and running into God. 
Chapter 19 is about an opportunities. And today, it's one of the greatest opportunities believers have. The opportunities to return and come back to God. Look at verse 19 as we start. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. God will always send word to you to return. God loves you too much to leave you in your sin. God cares about you more than God cares about you more than you care about yourself. And he cares about you too much to leave you in that lifestyle. Tonight in our 607 service, we're going to mention some of these lifestyle sins as we go through 2 Corinthians. But there was this phrase, and uh, I volunteered for uh, once at the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission in Chicago. Amazing. It's where uh, Billy Sunday got saved, great evangelist for the turn of the century. Pacific Garden Rescue There is no excuse to be homeless in the city of Chicago. They will take in sometimes 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. If you've ever heard of them, they did a radio show, and I think they still do call them Shackle. And there's this great quote, and I'm going to attribute it to them. I'm sure somebody else did it. But they had this great quote, and I was sat in there in their chapel service as they were preaching to these homeless people, as they were preaching to drug addicts and alcoholics and everything. There was this great quote on the wall of the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission, and it was this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. He said, I'm going to mention this hard at the 11 o'clock service. Because so many of our young people and our young adults think that, you know, these rules, these guidelines that God is trying to put on us are oppressive. God's rules and requirements aren't oppressive. It's because God loves you so much. He knows what happens once you step outside of those guidelines. He's trying to save your home. He's trying to save your marriage. He's trying to save your life. But sin will take you further than you want to go, longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Today, the Holy Spirit is calling you home. Amy, you let that little one cry. We have people who snore, she can cry. <laughs> she was so cute. Walked in the office, Amy was getting her ready, and I just saw her, and she was just, just this big, huge smile. I don't know if she was smiling at me or what, but anyone who smiles that beautiful can cry all they want. Leave that little one. Today, the Holy Spirit is calling you home. Are you running from God? Are you pushing down something that God wants you to do? We're going to look at three things out of Saul's life, what happens to him, and the opportunity to return. You're taking notes, number one. The opportunity to return involves God's spirit. Look at verse 20. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing as appointed over them, the spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And he was told to Saul, and he sent messengers, and they prophesied like him. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. I want you to see the picture of what's going on here. Saul finds out that David is with Samuel in this place called Naoth. And David and Samuel have retreated to a group of, well, they're a group of young preachers. They're a group of young prophets. It's like a seminary. It's like a Bible college. And, and basically Samuel is kind of the head of this little group of young preachers. And Saul sends messengers, well, really people to kill him. And he sends messengers to go find David. And they enter into the presence. And it's not, listen, by the way, it's not the man's spirit. It's not the man's presence. 
But they enter into the presence of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit of God is. And they have come under the guise of finding David, but they're really there to kill David. They have entered into this place to kill David. And the Spirit of God is so strong, they start prophesying and preaching and proclaiming God to him. Isn't that amazing? And then David, Saul finds out about it. He says, well, let's send another group of people. And I'm, I'm reading into it. I'm reading into it. I can kind of see Saul thinking, okay, maybe those guys were a little, let's get some really rough guys who won't be overcome by the Spirit of God. And he sends the second group, and they find David, and they go in there to arrest him, to get him, to kill him, to do him hard. And they enter into this group where Samuel and David are, and all these young preachers, and they're experiencing the power of God. And there's the first group over there, and they're worshiping, and they enter into it, and the Spirit of God is so strong it overcomes them. And then they, Saul finds out about it. He's okay, the third group. And in my mind, this is my mind, not the Bible. Saul probably gets the worst of the worst. Because there's no way the Holy Spirit can get a hold of somebody really far from him. There's no, there are certain people, so I will tell you this. There are certain people who can't be saved. There are certain people God can't reach. There are certain people, by the way, if you're here today and you've got a grandson, if you've got a daughter, if you've got somebody, you are just begging God to do something out of you thinking right now, they are too far from God and God can never do anything. You think of these three groups of men that's all said. Amen, Elaine? Nobody is too far from the power of God. And Saul says the third group, he gets murderers, he gets the worst guys. These guys are, you know, cheating on their wives and everything. These are the worst ones that God will never, they're going to be immune to the spirit of God. And the bad guys, the tattooed guys, the rough guys, they go in and they also are overcome by the spirit of God. They were sent to hurt David, but God had a different plan. My mentor, Dr. Don Gregory. Pastor Gregory, he always told this story of uh, his mentor, and uh, whose name is blowing my mind. I can't remember his name right now, but he was a Texas preacher, and uh, uh, Jay Frank Morse, and he was a Texas preacher, and uh, he preached against liquor, and he preached against all these things, and uh, there was a group of people uh, that were uh, building scaffolds in downtown Fort Worth to hang him, and the mobsters and a group of people came like. And so he decided, being a Texan, they're weird. He decided instead of running, he went and stood on the scaffolding and preached Jesus. And the people who were going to hang him got saved. I love that story. I'm not going to do it, Mark, but I love it. They had a plan to hurt David. But God had alternate plans. Listen, as they walked into the presence of God, there's basically three things I'd like to say they experienced. And isn't it amazing they all start with the letter P? Those witch preachers, why do we do this? They walked into the presence of God, they experienced prayer. They experienced praise, and they experienced proclaiming. Believer, you want to know what God's power is like in your life? Get involved in prayer. Get involved in praising Him. Get involved in proclaiming. You know what proclaiming is? Just telling people about Jesus. We make evangelism so difficult, think you have to take a class and you're special people. No, no, no. Just tell someone your story, how you know, came to know Christ as your personal Savior. Learn John 3.16 and corporate. Just share with them, proclaim what Jesus did in your life. And maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, that's... These are prophets, right? They were special. They're, they're super spiritual people. No, they were just like you. 
Listen, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operated differently. One individual for leadership, one particular place at a time. But in the New Testament, after Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit didn't come for the first time. He came in a new way. And now, if you're taking notes, the Holy Spirit is in all believers. Romans 8, 9, and if anyone ever tells you, well, you can be saved but not have the Holy Spirit, you have to do this or speak in tongues, you have to take the preacher to lunch. <laughs> you have to do something else to have it. No, as soon as you accept Christ as your personal Savior, Romans 8, 9 says, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not alone. Inside you is the same Spirit that is taking place here in verse 19. When God's Spirit is prevalent, you will be able to do things you never thought you could do. And see, here's the difference between the Bible and what the, what the heretics on some of these TV preachers are saying. They come to a passage like this and say, see, this is why God wants you to be always healed. This is why God wants you to be rich. This is why God wants you to be healthy. This is why God wants you to live in a big home. This is why I'm a millionaire, so you should be too. God wants all of these things for you because the Spirit of God will give you things you could never do. Listen. The Spirit of God gives you the ability to do things you can never do, not so that you can pick the correct stock tips, right? Not so that you can make the correct business decision. It's so that you can minister to other people. It's so that you can do things like forgive someone. Because I could never forgive my father with the Spirit of God you can forgive. It's so that you can minister. So that you can, I could never love those people. It's so that you can love them. You're here today, and you say, well, I, I, I could never teach, Pastor. Really? Do you, are you, if you're saved, say amen. amen. If you just said amen, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, he gives you the ability to do things that you thought you could never do under the guides of ministering to people. You say, I could never get up and speak. I could never teach a class. If you have the Holy Spirit, you could do things you never thought before. Amen. But remark it down. It's so that you can minister to other people. And I just feel a need, this isn't in my mind, I just feel a need to point something out. Again, this passage would be widely misused by some people, the, uh, the word of faith movement and different people. In first, in first Kings 14, <coughs> last night in our message, a young preacher is deceived by another preacher who said, well, an angel appeared to me. And he says, oh, I'm going to go because an angel said. Paul will say in Galatians 1, listen, even if an angel comes and speaks, say, how do I know it's the spirit of God and not a demon spirit, or not just my own desires, what my mother-in-law wants me to do. I can tell you how you can tell it's the spirit of God. Does it align with God's word or contradict God's word? There are people today saying there's a new gospel. There's a new way to be saved. I'm Redding, California, and this Bethel group that is preaching, and they're telling people that they have been with Jesus, and they go to heaven, and they've come back, and angels, and the Holy Spirit is telling them, there's a different gospel than what we've been taught. And God is now working in a whole new way. Listen, if it contradicts the word of God, it is not of God. Amen. Right. And I'm just, maybe God needs somebody to hear this, okay? I've had people come and say, well, I have a word of God for you. Now, you know what I do? I listen politely because I'm not a rude person. My mother raised a gentleman. But let me just be real clear with you. The word of God that I have is right here. I have God's word and I have the Holy Spirit. Instead of telling somebody I have a word of God, sometimes I will read a passage and I will think of what somebody's going through. And instead of saying, well, I have a word from God, I say, hey, why don't you read this? And look what God and let the Holy Spirit minister to that. 
Amen? By the way, they are prophesying here, prophesying in two parts, the ability to predict the future, and it's simply what I do, proclaiming God's word. Cross-reference 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12 tells us that the ability to proclaim the future is no longer needed. Why? Because that which is perfect, the word of God has come, and we do not need imperfect gifts right now. But what is pushing on you? What are you pushing back? The Holy Spirit is trying to talk to you. Whether it be some sin issue, whether it be to give, whether it be to share Jesus with your neighbor, you see them and you walk out every Sunday and you wave at them, and God is telling you, why don't you talk to them? What are you pushing down today? Because God's Spirit won't leave you alone. Number two, the opportunity to return is always possible. Look at verse 22. You think Saul is so far from God. You're here and you think your son will never get saved. You're, you think that there's no hope for your niece. Verse 22. Then went he, which is Saul, also to Ramah, and came to a great while and was at Sechem. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they be at Naoth and Ramah. Uh, Ramah is basically part of Saul's home. A side reference, 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 1 Samuel 15, 34. Let me just say this to you. No matter where, no matter where you go, home is where you are always accepted. Home is where you are always accepted. Now, on salvation, the greatest thing about knowing Jesus is the homecoming that every believer will have in heaven. Amen? Amen. Those of us that have lost people in this room, that's guaranteed as everyone. And we've said goodbye to somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what's so great about Jesus? Is that not only one day will I be with Jesus, but one day I'll get to see that person again. Why don't you accept Christ today? I mean, is the idea of being forgiven, that's just too great. The concept of being with God forever, oh, who would want that? of seeing people you've loved again and being with them and worshiping and having that amazing experience. Who would want something that great, Pastor? I mean, and it's for free? Who would need that? Why not today accept Christ as your personal Savior? God sent him to die on a cruel Roman cross. 33 sinless years. He is God, was God, and he died on a cruel Roman cross for you. Your punishment and mine. Why not today in Romans 10? upon the Lord. Amen? Now I'd like to take just a moment here to talk to parents about this home issue. Parents, make your place, make your home a place where your kids are accepted. Now, I'm going to say to because that's a buzzword that the world is using. What I mean by that, your home is a place where your kids are accepted. I did not say their sin is acceptable. <coughs> you understand what I'm saying here? You create some standards in your home. Mom and Dad, I tell my kids this all the time. My love is unconditional, but my, my money comes with strings attached. Right? I've told my children, you can stay in my house for as long as you want, but you've got to have a job or either go to school or be in the military. And if you're in my home, you're in my church Sunday morning and Sunday night. And there's some certain standards that my house has. You're not bringing alcohol. There's never going to be tobacco. And you're never going to be physically intimate with someone that you're not married with, or even ever, <laughs> in my home. I had somebody once ask me a long time ago, you know, uh, 
My son is 19 now. My son likes girls. My son likes a very nice girl, too. And I said, well, what would you do if your son announced to you that he didn't like girls? And I said, you know what I would do? I would keep loving my son. I would tell my son, I will never stop loving you. I'm going to try to get you help. I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to try to minister to your need. I will never change my theology to adjust to your lifestyle. But in my home, you, as a person, are always loved. But some of you, that person is a thief because they're on drugs. So maybe your physical house, they shouldn't be. But you never stop loving your son. You never stop calling him home. <coughs> Amen? Amen? Parents, let me just say this about the home. A parent's job is to create a place of safety and peace. Amen? Yeah. They need to know, your kids need to know that home is always stable. That home is a place not of conflict and a place where things are thrown across the table constantly. Everybody fights. Everybody struggles and has issues. But those need to be the rare events, not the everyday occurrence. And your home, their parents, you say, how do I do this? Parents' job is to sacrifice. Parents' job is to sacrifice. Can I, can I just say sacrifice like things like as a single mom, a single dad? Maybe you don't date until they're out of high school. Maybe it's time you go to AA. Because the best thing your son might need is a dad who's sober. Maybe it's time you make a decision that you're going to be faithful to God's word and faithful to God's church. Because the best thing your son needs is a mom who loves Jesus. Maybe it's time you, maybe you don't take a job that's going to take you away from home. But it's a promotion. It's more money. You want to know if you're properly sacrificing? As I say all these different things, if your response is, but I, but me, but what I want. Once you become a parent, your wants go out the window. And you sacrifice everything for your children, whether that means getting dry, whether that means not dating, whether that means sacrificing everything you want so that your children have a place of safety and peace. And by the way, you want to have a place of safety and peace as a home? Have a home that honors Jesus. Amen. Christians, though, it is always possible, it's always possible to come home if God is your life. And lastly, number three, the opportunity to return requires surrender. This is one of the oddest passages of the Bible. Many preachers skip over it. Are you ready? King Saul goes in and he finds out what happens to the other three. So he goes himself, and he himself, even away from God, is not immune to God. And watch what it says here in the authorized version. And he went hither to Naoth the Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth the Ramah. In verse 24, and he stripped off his clothes also. That's the part most preachers skip. <laughs> and prophesied before Samuel like men and lay down naked all day and all night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also known among the prophets? Let me just say this to you. It's believed by most theologians and scholars that Saul is not removing all of his clothes. When he's talking about taking off his clothes and being naked, what he is actually taking off is his kingly robes. He's taking off those robes that... You see, what was Saul's number one problem? Saul's number one problem wasn't that God wasn't faithful. Saul's number one problem wasn't really sin. Saul's number one problem was his pride. 
It was his pride in who he was and that he was king. And when he entered into the presence of God, it's not his all clothing that he walked into. It was that robe that he had that signified, I'm king. I'm in control. I'm the leader. And he walked into God's presence. And what did he have to do? He humbled himself. Do you see what Paul will say in Philippians, the New Testament presence? That there is coming a time and in a place that every individual, human being, everyone with a soul who is going to be on this planet will one day come into the presence of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When you come into God's presence, you will be humbled. You will fall on your feet. You will excuse me, fall on your face. And you will worship. Saul is not taking off his clothes. Saul is taking off what represents his pride. He is surrendering the thing that has kept him from serving God the most. What is surrender to God? Number one, drop what's keeping you from serving him. What's keeping you from serving him? You know the thing, seniors, I'm going to tell you this. This is why kids and students have to be. I had a large student ministry. I preached to different young people at times and stuff. I've preached things just like this. Do you know how many times I've had young people during an invitation after a message like this to come forward? I've had things from cigarettes placed in my hand. I've had drugs placed in my hands. I, I had a phone number of a girl placed in my hand. He said, Pastor, which I got rid of all of that. <laughs> But I've had people come up and when I've preached this about dropping whatever it is that's keeping you from serving God, I've had young people come up and say, I don't want this anymore. I'd rather have Jesus. What is it that is keeping you from serving God? Listen, for some of you, we live in a very materialistic culture. You live in an above average economic area. You live in a farly above average by the world standards. For some of you, please don't bring it up to this altar, but some of you need to take your checkbook and drop it at the altar of God. You see, I get much better amens when I preach about heroin. <laughs> that's right, heroin, anything. So that's probably not a big problem in this room, right? But a lot of you, man, what's keeping you from serving God? Maybe you need to drop the keys to your car. Give it to the preacher? No, no. <laughs> Whatever it is, whether it's something like your pride, whether it's a physical possession, a relationship that needs to end, maybe you need to delete Facebook, whatever it is, it's not worth keeping you from experiencing the power, the presence, and the peace of God. Let you stay. Just drop it. You don't have to put it in my hand. But you know what? I preach this to young people. For some reason, they take me for serious. For some reason, young people think, yeah, I'll surrender my life to Jesus. I'll go to a mission field. I preach this to senior citizens. Nobody moves. I preach this to business executives. Nobody moves. Whatever's keeping you from surrendering to God, would you take it off today? Number two, open yourself up to Him. You know what I noticed when I was a, a student pastor? Teenage boys are cowards. When it comes to girls, there's only about 5% of teenage boys who can see a girl across the school cafeteria, never really talk to her, and think, hey, 
I like her, and walk over across that cafeteria and walk across the room and say to that girl, would you like to go out with me? So about 5%. If you're one of those guys, God bless you. You have no fear. Because there's that fear of that girl rejecting you, right? And if she rejects you, then you have to kind of uh, walk all the way back across. So this is what teenage boys do. I used to always tell us to teenage girls, this is what they're doing. Guys don't want girls as friends. Guys want dates, right? What boys like to do, instead of walking over and saying, what a boy will do, he'll find a girl, and he'll start to be friends with her. Hey, do you have the same in class? I saw you in algebra. Do you have the notes? Do you have this? Hey, this, and just kind of hanging out and being real close till finally he thinks maybe she goes, well, maybe we can date. That's how teenage boys work. And I have these teenage girls all the time go, we're just friends, Pastor. Okay, next time you're at a movie with him, next time you're sitting at him, reach over and hold his hand and see what he does. Because if his guy friend reaches over and holds his hand, he's going to drop his hand and slug it, right? Because we're just friends. What are you doing? Holding my hand. But if he doesn't drop it, maybe he has other intention, and they always get that look of recognition. <laughs> oh, he's trying to date you, right? Why do teenage boys do that? Because they're petrified of opening themselves up and being vulnerable to someone. Because they might get hurt. I want to say this to you. You're guarded with Jesus. You opened yourself up, and look how your ex-husband treated you. You opened yourself up when you were young and your dad ran off. You opened yourself up and your mom was physically abusive. I mean, there's some real horrific stories inside this room. You choose today. I'm going I'm to, by faith, by faith, this is all by faith. By faith, I'm going to open myself up to Jesus. And I'm going to let God have every part of my life. I want to assure you today, he will not hurt you. He will not let you down. He will not walk away from you. Some of the hardest things you'll ever do is just be real with Jesus. Sounds like that should be so easy. But when everybody else lets you down and you get rejected, it makes coming home more difficult, isn't it? Today, on that, with that mentality, why our home is so important. I want to close my message. Usually, I, I tell a story or I give an illustration and I end it. I had something prepared, but Mary, Mary gave me an article this week that was just so alarming, horrible. It's from USA Today. Kids are not being raised today. Kids are surviving today. They're not being raised, they're surviving. And this article out of USA Today just broke my heart. Because it talks about how young Americans are the loneliest generation ever. That teenagers and young adults and junior hires are more lonely than senior citizens who are alone in a nursing home. People who have technology and different social media and all of these connections, when they surveyed them, they said that 47% of them feel left out. 46% of our young people sometimes or always feel alone. 43% of them feel that their relationships are not meaningful. 
43% of the young people in America today feel isolated and alone and not loved. 43%. And you see, listen, this is why the home in marriage is so important. This is why Satan attacks the marriage and attacks home and tries to remove a man out of that home and that presence. Sir, if you're here today and you are a father, you are the first minister in your home. You are an instrument of God. You stay in that home. You lead your, your boys and girls like Jesus would lead them. You love their mother and you do everything you can to keep your home intact because your babies need you. But we have created, instead of homes that are safe, we've created a war zone. We've created confusion where people don't know what bathrooms they're supposed to use anymore. We don't have men in our homes. And instead of dad bringing families to church, mom drags everybody to church. Sir, you are the spiritual leader of your home. So why is that so important? Because your kids, your grandkids need to know that there is at least one place on this planet that they can come home to and find peace and security. Your son needs at least one male role model who's faithful to his wife. Your daughter needs at least one female role model who serves Jesus. My invitation today is very simple. You're here and don't know Christ as your personal Savior. I'd love to show you down front. Every week I say that. Opportunity still stands. You're here and you have been pushing the Holy Spirit away like a beach ball. Why don't today you just give up and surrender and start serving God? Because He won't go away if you're a believer. And my last part of the invitation is for our homes. I'm not even talking about our homes out in the world. I'm just talking about the homes and the people that we love, the homes they go to that are inside Oakland Woods. During our invitation today, would you come and pray for your home? Would you pray for the children that are being raised in your home? Maybe some of you, there's someone you love that's far from God. Why not today, instead of nagging? Today, you ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit of God to fall on your life and see what God can do. No one is too far that they can't come home. Every head bowed and every head closed. As we sing our songs, we're